G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. I'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which the podcast is produced down here in Geelong and acknowledge the Wathaurung people as the traditional custodians on the lands that we made. I'd also like to extend those respects wherever you listen to the podcast and acknowledge the traditional custodians on the lands where our podcast guests are joining us from. We know that First Nations Australians have told stories and used stories to pass on wisdom, create connection and share knowledge for tens of thousands of years and hundreds of generations and would like to pay homage to it as part of this podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're uncovering Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates and just about everyone in between. So, thank you for joining us as part of the GRDC In Conversation podcast and let's jump into it. For more than 20 years, Tim Neal has been running his own businesses in agriculture. Along that journey, he's managed more than 20 research, development and extension projects for a broad spectrum of clients across a variety of ag sectors. He's been recognised as the Australian Rural Consultant of the Year in 2018. He is the co-founder of Data Farming, an ag technology company which services more than 35,000 farms across 50 countries with satellite imagery and insights. Today, Tim and I chat about the evolution of his business and what it's like to run a global business from his base in Toowoomba in Queensland. Over three different iterations, the business has grown to solve farmers' problems and it's this approach that has meant their uptake hasn't slowed down along the way. Welcome back to the GRDC In Conversation podcast. We chat with different people each week, whether they're growers, advisors, consultants, just different people who are involved in supporting the Aussie grain industry to thrive. One of those people is Tim Neal, who was named the Australian Rural Consultant of the Year in 2018. He brings more than 25 years of experience across Australia and international business, 20 of which have been spent in his own businesses. He's the co-founder of Data Farming, which services... And mate, this is insane. 35,000 farms across 50 countries with satellite imagery every five days. So I'm really excited to jump into that. I think the role of precision agriculture, controlled traffic farming, all the different things that you've been involved in that have influenced that have ultimately led you to this business that you're running today and helping farmers. But first and foremost, a a difficult question. How are you, Tim? And whereabouts are you joining us from? We're based in Toowoomba, been here for about 15 years. And further west before that, so yeah, always been a Queenslander, I guess. So it's yeah, it's great to be able to service, you know, global business from from regional Australia still. Whereabouts were you living before that? Uh, Dolby, then Miles, and then I grew up up in Central Queensland. So yeah, Queenslander through and through, mate. <laughs> well, I'm interested. Look, did you ever have intentions of creating and running a global business, or did it just kind of keep evolving? Yeah, it's definitely an evolution, Ollie. Like. It's this one thing leads to another, and I guess that's the really enjoyable journey is that we can see, you know, this continual change and evolution in in the way technology interacts with agriculture. You know, I always sort of wanted to work for the department, and I did that for seven years, you know, Department of Prime Ministries and Agronomist. You know, I could, growing up, I knew a lot of people, you know, that worked in the department, and that was a sort of pinnacle place to work back in the day, you know, with, if you're a agricultural graduate was definitely to head into the department and how things quickly change. You know, you've probably seen most states 
got rid of all their ag department people and I saw the light before the train hit. So yeah, a few mates jumped ship and we, we set up a business. So yeah, it was a, it's been a real evolution though in that time. Can you tell me, Tim, what was it about joining the department? Like, why did people want to do it? Because it's definitely very different to, I guess, my generation coming through. Yeah, I think it was that a lot of people respected the government at that time, you know, for advice and, you know, overall, the overall development of the grains industry was certainly front and foremost in the departments. And there was, you know, when I first joined the department, there was office, offices in central Queensland, you couldn't even move, you know, for the number of people that they employed. It was unbelievable. And now that office today has got about two people in it. We went from you know, 60 or 70 people to, to two, you know, pretty much. So I think I reflected the other day, you know, when I, why on earth we still don't have lots of government support people in agriculture because really nothing's changed, right? Got the same number of hectares out there and people still need help, but we should still be able to invest in agriculture like that at a, at a state and federal government level, but we're not. There's been massive reductions in investment in agriculture, particularly support. And I also, I feel that, we, you know, agricultural support in a business sense is also very poor in Australia. So, yeah, it's very interesting to reflect on that and why the department was what it was back in the day. But, you know, things move on. But, yeah, it's interesting to see that that support declined for agriculture over those years. And would you say that out of necessity, agriculture has then just evolved and become more efficient and, and utilised, I guess, less people in those regions or have just the jobs and, and the roles and, and I guess the private business and the role of the consultant changed? Oh, that certainly changed it, mate. The consultants definitely, definitely changed that. And But some of that was by accident because they lost departmental people. So farmers went and looked for other solutions. So, you know, one thing led to another, but you still need some independent support in the industry, I think. But those days are long gone, mate. So, you know, we've we've got to build technology solutions that fill, fill the gap. We've lost half our farmers in the last 30 years. So, my gen, you know, my time in agriculture has been 30 years and I've seen a big massive reduction in farmer number and big increase in farm size, obviously, to counteract that. We're still farming roughly the same acres. So, yeah, the, the need's still there. And I think that's where technology comes in, though, mate, is to fill that gap of trying to support and help people make the most out of their land with the most efficient way possible with the amount of human resources we've got actually in agriculture. In your your bio, in your yeah, your CV, you've got more than 20 industry RD research development and extension projects that you've managed, but you haven't just done it in the grains industry, you've done it in horticulture, you've done it in viticulture, sugarcane, turf, tree crops. Like, How have you created these opportunities and what was it about your career that has allowed you to step into those different spaces and have impact? That's a great question because people say, oh, how do you get across all that stuff? And it's like, well, you just say yes and you work it out afterwards, you know. So it's the, <laughs> it's just um, there's an old saying, mate, the leap in the net will appear. And I firmly believe in that. And I think um, you just take risks and, you, you you know, within reason, you don't take unnecessary risks, but you take risks to have a go at something. And being in the private industry, you can say yes to whatever you like. And there's no one saying you can't do that, you can't do this. So when someone has a problem, we try and find a solution. And that's one of the most, well, really working with those people in those industries is the most rewarding part, but it's very rewarding to work across industries and across jurisdictions to be able to service needs. So, yeah, it's just about saying yes. That's <laughs> what it's about, really. Say yes and work the rest out later. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me, as a kid in central Queensland, like, what was that early interest? What are your early memories of agriculture, if you think right back, that made you start to fall in love with the industry? Yeah, also, I mean... My grandfather and father 
grew up on the farm. Obviously, um, my father went off and did an apprenticeship because, you know, at that time they, they said, oh, well, there's no point staying in agriculture. There's no future there. So a bit like what we were told as well, you know, like, oh, don't, don't bother with, don't be a farm manager or don't be a farm worker. There's no future in that. So, you know, it started from that and working on farms all, all growing up. Yeah, absolutely passionate for it. And then, you know, I think uh, agriculture in schools was important as well. So, you know, we had an ag program, luckily enough, in our small school. And the people there went to university, you know, the ag teachers had been to university and they said, this is the path, you know. And so right back in those days, that's really important to get that. I was reflecting on this the other day, Ollie, about you know, how do we get more people into this game? And it really did start for me back, right back in high school and, and before that, working on farms and having an ag program. So, you know, I think we should encourage that wholeheartedly because that's where it all really starts from and having good mentors in that in that early stage is really important. It's amazing. And I know there is a real push from different people in the industry to actually get back into the classrooms and to try and create these programs and pathways because I think, like, it can't be underestimated just the influence that, like, school teachers have on people mm-hmm. and not just for those few years out of school. I reckon it's across the whole life. You think back to yep. how those teachers have influenced you. Yeah. Yep. No, absolutely. So you left the department after, was it seven or eight years and, and set up a business with a few mates. What were you doing? And yeah, was it just a, a step change going, oh, well, there's a new opportunity or we're kind of sick of the way this is running. Let's do something ourselves. Yeah, well, I was ended up doing a lot of commercial projects anyway for the department. I said, well, I can just go and do this for myself. And, you know, it was at the time when the departments were winding down on certain services and, you know, we'd really had a consultancy gig to do that people needed help. So it was really about a consultancy sort of role. And at that time, uh, my wife, Peter, had, was in the department as well in doing tree clearing mapping, would you believe? Really horrendously boring stuff. But um, so she had the GIS skills and the mapping skills and I, you know, done the agronomy. So we just, she jumped across as well and and, and uh, we set up together. And, and so we're able to provide a mapping service, you know, farm mapping and planning sort of t- service, which then quickly led into a project with GRDC, would you believe, back in 2002, 2003. It was a five-year program on um, precision agriculture. It was a sort of a big new push from GRDC back then. So we, we were lucky enough to be one of the proponents to get part of that project. And that that then really opened up our eyes to what the opportunities were with the technology. So we went from straight consulting to really about how can we build a business around this technology, those satellites came in. We, we were the first, pretty much the first company in Australia to use high resolution satellite imagery in 2003. So it's 20 years on, mate. And, um, you know, we found this amazing data getting, you know, we could see every single run line in a paddock, you know, from satellite. And this is just blowing our mind. So. You know, and, and you got to remember this time, yield mapping has been around a while. You know, controlled traffic was really kicking off. We were doing a lot of work in controlled traffic farming. You know, I started working in that in, in 1994. And that sort of laid the pathway and the foundations to build the other tech on top. But that GRDC project was absolutely fundamental. And I'm really sort of really proud that we're still carrying that legacy on from that investment 20 years ago they did. You know, we're really still taking that forward. And so, yeah, that's how we really got kicked off on that and then we then sort of built even bigger and bigger business around soil testing the imagery the the yield mapping the vertebrate prescriptions all started to come in in a big way and i guess data farming then we we identified that how do we scale this thing bigger than what we can do we had teams of people processing data this is silly right we've got to get a scalable solution and that's what data farming we started data farming for peter and i realized there was a big gap in the market 
people just weren't adopting the technology. It's sitting there and was so frustrated that it just wasn't being uptaken. We knew it had value. We just had to put it into a format that they could consume. And that's that's what data farming is all about. So how did those, and just going back, so it's, you've set up three different businesses at, at various stages. Have they all been interrelated or how did they evolve and what kind of service did they have? Yeah, so it was that sort of evolution, mate, from control traffic to guidance systems and then identifying the satellites and the yield mapping and then realising that all these pieces fit together to try and help farmers manage their variability. So it was real evolutionary steps between those technologies over time. And that five-year project with the GRDC, look, had they just engaged you in on the mapping side or what was that project for? And I guess what were the real outcomes of it over that five-year period? Yeah, there was a number of... Most of the universities were, were funded to do it. We were pretty much the only private business, funnily enough, um, that was funded. The rest were, were all universities, you know, doing typical research. So we just went in a very farmer-focused. Farmer we went, we had a, like 100 sites across Australia or something, and we just were f- totally focused on what the farmer needed to do. So looking at it really pragmatically, what's driving their variation in their production, and then how do we fix that? And it was... That's that's always the best way, isn't it, Ollie? If you keep the client focus in mind, the other stuff will flow every time. You know, the money will flow and the business will flow. And so it was really about focusing on farmer problems. And that's what was measuring. So measuring the with satellite, you know, how, how good the crop's growing during the season, measuring with yield, how did it finish, and then measuring the soil and how do we fix the soil to improve the productivity over the long term. So if we were to to jump into data farming and I'm going to ask you can you explain your business to me as if I'm someone in a pub in Brizzy and I've never ever heard about what you do or have very little connection to agriculture yeah so it's really about managing the variability there's like 300% variation in yield in every single paddock and most people don't realize how crazy that variability is so we're trying to help manage that variability and it's all about digital agronomy without all the hassle we're trying to make it simple, easy to use, and easy to uptake. Yeah, wow. What's the, the human role in this versus the computers? I guess, you know, importantly, trust is big in agriculture. So people with data need to trust where that data is going. So I think that's really important. We also have some pretty smart data scientists and software developers now that do the grunt work behind the scenes. But again, it's it's connecting what I call spaced down to the cab, right? So it's the joining all the dots. And we, we live by helping agronomists do a better job each day, you know, making their lives easier, more efficient by presenting data to them in the right format. And so they can make more comfortable decisions. And then we take it, care of that into the cab to make sure the farmer can actually get it into the cab because there's lots of barriers and blockers in there, mate. You know, one with the agronomists, they need the data to make better decisions and they, and they can't currently access data easily. That's the first problem. And so we need to give them help because some of them are managing dozens and dozens of farms now on their own, hundreds of thousands of hectares, and they're trying to get the best outcome for the growers and they're really struggling. They're under a huge amount of pressure. So we're trying to help them do a better job. And then when the farmer comes to implement it, they get so frustrated when the technology doesn't work. So we want to make that process super smooth for them so that they feel comfortable, they can achieve you know, improving that productivity and re- improving their environmental footprint, you know, impact or reducing their environmental impact. But uh, and whilst, you know, making more money, they've got to do that. It's got to still got to be easy. It could be worth all the money in the world, but if it's not easy, people aren't going to do it. So 
we feel that that's the critical component is using the technology to help the human implement what they need to implement. Yeah. So when you say data, like what data is it that the agronomists are trying to get access to that are, that they're struggling to get hold of? Oh, simple things like yield monitor data. So a farmer will harvest the field, get the, that variability I talked about shows up in the yield monitoring. Well, there is no simple application that an agronomist can pull it up on his phone and have a look at it in the paddock. And after 25 years of yield mapping, we should be better than this, right? So the industry has failed to deliver, I believe, simple solutions to the people that make the decisions. So I think that it's a simple thing. And, you know, if a normal person downloads an app that doesn't deliver them any value or isn't easy to use, then it quickly gets bin, doesn't it? So we've, we've got to have the same attitude in agriculture, and we, we certainly haven't done that in the past. So what do you reckon it is? Like, why has ag failed? Because especially in the cropping space, it's not like there's limited investments in technology. No, it's user experience. As simple as that. It's got to be a good user experience. It's got to deliver value, and it's got to be easy to use and have a low barrier to entry. And if you look across any app on your phone, the ones that win are the ones that have good user experience. Unfortunately, we've stuffed that up big time in ag and made it too too expensive, too complicated, and haven't provided the support mechanisms either. You know, so that's critically important. Something I've been wondering lately, and I know you guys are a software business, but I've wondered, like, is it possible, and you might prove me wrong, is it possible for a software business that is focused on monetizing through the farmer being their customer to be profitable? Oh, absolutely. I just think it needs a different business model. You know, in Australia, we don't have enough farms, farmers, sorry. Like, there's literally 25,000 individuals that are farmers in Australia. Now, if, if I was to launch a normal app to the wider community for 25,000 people, mate, it's going to be a pretty ordinary app, isn't it, right? Let's be honest. If I was building a new app for 25,000 people, uh, a banking app, it's going to be pretty ordinary. So this is the problem we've got, mate. We just don't have enough people. So, you know, there's a couple of things we've got to do here. We've changed our business model to try and be as much per hectare. And I'm, some people don't like that. Some people do, whatever. We've got to pick something. But, you know, there's, we've got to be able to scale and grow because subscriptions, you just, this is why, I'm definitely talking out of school, mate. This is why a lot of ag techs in Australia disappear over to the US. Like, it's this sad reality that there's not enough investment here in Australia and the market size is too small. So to keep people here, we need to change the model. And I'm passionate about doing this because I hate seeing these businesses disappear over the US and farmers get sick of it as well, mate. Like, they, they don't want to be used as guinea pigs for the North American market. They hate that. So how can we build a sustainable business here that, that can grow uh, and be sustainable without having to chase the shiny lights of the US. Yeah, and I'm keen to flesh that out a little bit more with you because so through your business, did you guys, as you set up, go, okay, path to commercialization to actually make this into something we've got to go global? Because I think 50-odd countries around the world is extraordinary. But was that the initial intent or was it about solving the problem closer to home? Oh, it's always been here. It, that's all happened by accident, mate. I'm would you believe? It's absolutely by accident. Um, we've done no marketing at all or anything outside of, of Australia. So, you know, we've got 10% of our user base is now in Western Europe, and it's all done by accident. I haven't done that deliberately. So what I want to achieve, Ollie, is be able to grow an, a globally scalable business still sitting here in Toowoomba. That's what I want to achieve. I don't want to have to go over to the US and in Silicon Valley. I don't want to, I'm not interested. But, you know, we do need to grow globally to make it more sustainable. 
in terms of business sense, just just simply like you know we're starting to work in Southeast Asia. There's like 180 million farmers in Southeast Asia outside of China, you know. So far out. You know, like the and the subcontinent's the same. India about 140 million farmers. Yeah, you know, so the numbers are just mind-boggling, right? But we're seeing in other countries like Japan. You take UK for example; they're they're losing about a fifth of their farmers every year. So you know, there's some really big trends happening, some scary trends going on in the broad agricultural sense. But you know, it's just trying to find that balance, mate, so that we can have a sustainable business here. Man, it's bloody fascinating. Let's talk about adoption. So through those, I guess, smaller areas, huge number of farmers, as you said there, India, Southeast Asia, like are you seeing the uptake of technology as well? Uh, it happens very differently over there because they don't rely on, like the smallholder subsistence level farmers are, are very poor. So it's through more aggregation groups or, you know, uh, corporate groups that are buying on behalf of growers. That's probably where the market is. But if you go back to France, Germany, Netherlands, UK, I mean, they're all direct-to-farmer sort of model. So, you know, uh, or the agronomists, of course, the agronomists are trying to get more and more support as well. So, you know, I think, yeah, each region is going to have its own differences. And the US is different again, right? It, it's very much driven by compliance and getting the farm bill. So, you know, there's different drivers in different regions. But, you know, what strain farmers are all about is driving efficiency and productivity. So, you won't meet more driven farmers anywhere in the world except maybe New Zealand where they're really, really mm. focused on improving themselves and, and their farms. That's fairly unique anywhere in the world. What are some of the other learnings that you've picked up as you've conversed with farmers right across the globe into maybe the similarities and differences to, yeah, the Aussie farmer? Yeah, the drive is different. What their reason for being is, you know, much more compliance in Europe getting their insurance in the US. Here, it's all about, well, we've got to do the best we can with what we've got. So, and Southeast Asia, they're about survival. So each farmer in the world's trying to do the same thing, but they do it, they're driven by different factors. Yeah, so yeah, we just got to understand each market. What The other thing I've learned is that, you know, you know, trust still plays a big role in data. So we want to make sure we're, you know, delivering good value to growers and then the data is being used appropriately because there is a lot of questions around that. The other thing I've learned is that, you know, the the whole pet marketing piece is really interesting in ag. Like it's a whole bottle in itself. You, you, you've probably done, I mean, you've done plenty of stuff on this, but, you know, we're finding that marketing doesn't really make any difference. We get about 100 and on average 110 farms a week drawing in, getting drawn into their platform and whatever I do in marketing makes no difference. Whereas some organisations heavily rely on marketing to get their their market uptake. So there's still a big unknown there, mate, about how growers behave in that way. So it's very interesting sort of social experiment, if you like. <laughs> well, and an, an amazing credit to the business you guys have built if you've got those leads and signups coming into you as opposed to having to go and, and chase them down. <laughs> I'm not an outbound kind of person, mate. I, I want to, I'm an in, inbound kind of person. So I want people to come to me with their problems, not go and hassle them. I hate mm. salesmen, so I think most farmers are getting used to seeing salesmen drive up the up the up the driveway. But I'm not sure that's what they really enjoy. Uh, so I, I want it to be demand driven, not pushed. You've got to make people aware of what you're doing. That's different, I think. But being pushy, I don't think really helps. And and you see, you see some of the businesses that have come from the US that have landed in Australia with that really pushy attitude. They got big sign ups early on, but they've since left the country and have 
left a bit of a train wreck in their path because they promised the world and, and didn't end up delivering. So I'd much prefer to have a sustainable demand pull rather than technology push. That's the kind of person I am, but I get that people have different ways of doing things. Now, you and me both are very similar on that sales front. Nothing makes me cringe more and off on anything. I'll procrastinate to the nth degree just to make sure that I, <laughs> I don't have to do it. <laughs> yep, I agree. Uh, yeah, no. Nah. What have you seen with the the adoption? And and I know you've you've got some views of technology adoption within Australian farmers, especially the grains industry. Like, do you see that there's an adoption issue? The only adoption issue, and, and again, I'm I'm bagging my own industry out, is that I I don't think it's it's not the big learning is not the growers' fault. Like they keep they keep wanting to blame agriculture and the, the laggards in technology adoption. I don't think it's that at all. It goes back to my point before. It's user experience. So I just believe, you know, there's certain apps, uh, programs out there that, you know, for a grower to sign up is two and a half grand for the year. If I'm a grower, I'm not quite sure what this is. Am I going to put two and a half grand on the table? Like for something I don't really know what it's going to deliver value on. You might, there might be a 30 day trial, but most of the time there's not. And in agriculture, it's like sign up first and then try it out later. So I, I just, I just think that that's, there's just all these barriers. And, and so if we break down the barriers, I think adoption happens really easily. We've had straight line adoption since day one. It hasn't changed. It's just the same. I'm expecting it to tank sooner or later, but it's just not. And I think I just, um, yeah, I just think that we've over, it's the industry's fault, not the farmer. And that's what my massive, massive wake up moment was, is that this can really happen quickly if we deliver a good value to growers. And, you know, like on GRDC, like they, they recognise this too. And I hope they don't mind me saying this, but they, they've built 200 apps over the, the last 20 years. And, you know, the, the, the longevity of a lot of those apps has been, hasn't been there. There's some that have survived, but, you know, and, and so they, they're coming to us a lot, Ollie, and saying, look, you guys have got, you know, market, you're getting to the market. Why don't we just get the R&D into your platform and deliver it to growers that way? And, and that's super happy for us because we, we love doing that. And, you know, even make it for free. I don't care. If they pay for it, they're happy to put stuff out for free as well. But, you know, there needs to be an enduring long-term business solution as well. So there might be more freemium models coming, Ollie, where, you know, we get a bit for free and then if they want premium, then they pay extra. I think that's a really nice model because growers feel like they've paid for it in the first place anyway. So we're very keen on that kind of approach where we can help slip R&D into the program and, and growers still get the benefit, but GRDC don't have to create another 100 apps or 200 apps, you know? It's really interesting, and that point that you say around that, the paid experience, instead of, like, when I'm signing up for software, because we use a whole bunch of different things, everything from scheduling to project management to editing software, whatever it might be, if if I get the option of a yearly subscription, nine and a half times out of 10, it will not go near it, but more than happy, and, and a lot of the products we actually try using come out of the US, so get a, get a bit of a... a non nice exchange rate in that but like we're paying sometimes $25 or sometimes $150 a month and really just going oh well, let's just get it into the business try it for this next month um if you look at that over over the course of a year that 150 bucks in the first instance well there's two grand ish like by the time you actually have the exchange rates that you got to cough up but that $150 we work out very quickly 
does it work for us? How do we best use it? And then make a decision really quickly whether we continue or not. And and more often than not, when it's delivering us value, either it's saving us time or giving us, yeah, I guess that ability to to expand what we're doing, then we're going for it. But it's it's that paid subscription. We're more than happy to do it in the first instance, but the experience has to be good. Yeah. Yeah, and in the software you're talking about, yeah, similar sort of stuff we use, but you know, their, market, their total addressable market for that software is probably 30, 40 million people, you know, not, not 30,000 people. <laughs> so, you know, it can work. And, you know, when we get investors in, they want to look at the, they want to look at it the same way with our business and say, well, it doesn't work like that. We, we're trying to go on a per hectare basis and the growers understand how much it costs them per hectare. They know how many hectares they got. They can work it out for themselves, you know. So, yeah, it's not a, it, pricing's, you never get pricing right, mate, with, with anything, but it's just got to suit the majority of people, really. But again, I truly believe in, like you said, you've got to try before you buy and make sure it's delivering value for you. Otherwise, what's the point? Because you end up with thousands of subscriptions every month like we are. We're the same. We've got dozens of different bloody subscriptions. And you think, you know, where's all this money going? You know, it's, um, <laughs> yeah. Given the, the evolution you've seen in the 20 years of the technology space in your sphere, like we've you've gone from, say, I guess, seeing satellite tech being accessible but not hugely accessible and probably at high cost to now these micro satellites and everything where do you see in your corner of the world where do you see that technology progressing in say the next five to ten years uh well i'll give you a bit of an idea mate the the number of satellites uh, launched in the last two years in in the world have doubled right doubled and we've been the world's been launching satellites since 1960 so 60 years of launching and we've doubled in the last two so that shows you that you know the growth rate is so extreme that the technology that's coming is going to be uh, cheaper better quality more regular like companies talking multiple times a day imaging the whole earth you know like this scary amounts of data coming so it's good news for agriculture people do get a bit threatened by this that they're getting watched there's no way we're going to stop that now so we just have to wake up to the reality of that but we, what we need to do is look at the positives. How can we use this to our advantage? And you know, we're embarking on some new projects now for weed detection and disease detection uh, with satellite imagery, for example. So to me, we're gonna get much better alerting systems in our cropping and grazing systems, early alerting to problems that are coming. Um, we're gonna get it far more, uh, far more frequent than what we are now. You know, multiple times a day is a reality. We're going to get data that can penetrate through clouds. You know, there's data that now that sort of 20 centimetre resolution penetrating through clouds to work out what's happening on the ground. And this is being used extensively in the war zones at the moment, unfortunately. Uh, it's a sad use of the technology, but it's a real use of, is actually understanding what troop movements, for example, through dust and clouds. So there's that kind of tech coming. There's soil water measurement technology coming total uh, terrain modeling um, technology coming so we'll be able to understand the heights of our plants uh, again uh, above the ground surface we'll be able to understand the soil water we'll be able to understand the pest and disease incidents um, we'll be able to predict the yield so you know the whole digital agronomy world is going to really benefit from this acceleration um, one of the big launches is obviously Elon Musk with his uh, micro satellites for comms and ags loving that, of course, Ollie. So, you know, that's a tremendous uh, benefit. And, and I think that's going to see finally some true, true um, 
you know, connection in the bush that we've been so desperate for for years. So to me, that space race, as I, as I call it, um, is, is finally delivering massive value back to agriculture uh, because it's outdoors. And, and, you know, most people in the cities won't see much value from that kind of technology. But agriculture is absolutely sitting duck for being, being the, the big beneficiary from, from all this new tech, mate. So it's very exciting times ahead. These companies are scrambling for, for clients, so we're in a good place to link the farmer with the technology provider. Yeah, wow. And what about for you guys? Is there, in the foreseeable future, any any cool, new, interesting projects that you guys are launching? Yeah, probably that weed and disease one's a big one. Um, but yeah, we do all sorts of weird and wacky jobs, um, even crop type detection from space. We've had a project with GRDC for the last four years to look at how we can determine crop types from space for you know, planning and even yield prediction on farms so we can help people with yield prediction. So, mate, we've got, yeah, there's, we've got a million irons in the fire because there's so many opportunities. We need to stay a bit more focused probably, but, you know, it's it's really exciting times ahead. So here's a question I haven't asked someone before on this, but we're going to roll it in now. Oh, here we go. If yep. you had <laughs> Elon Musk's wallet and you could pursue and invest in anything which is going to benefit the Australian grain industry, what would you invest in? And um, you can't say I your think, own company, Tim, either. No, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> uh, I, I think the, um, you know, if you look at what people are struggling with, you know, there, there's the whole financial and drought factors, um, you know, weighing heavily on people's minds. And, um, you know, I, we, we can't change the weather. But, you know, to me, the automation piece to try and help people do more jobs more timely because of the lack of staff, you know, I see it all the time where we're not just getting jobs done on time because of just getting those resources. I, I do, great, you know, deeply, I'm deeply concerned about the lack of people in, in rural areas and the decline in rural towns still. You know, I did a big trip around Queensland a few weeks ago and 5,000 kilometres and, you know, all I saw was decline. I didn't see boom. Also in Victoria recently, you know, we're setting up an office in Horsham. You know, Horsham's booming, but everywhere else is not. You know, so I, I really still feel uh, concerned about that where where the people are going. And so, how can we? I tell you what, I reckon we should do is 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 build more, put a lot of money into remotely pot, you know, remote UAVs for humans. There's a lot of work going on in that space, but it, just imagine, mate. Like there was a futurist talked to us a couple of years ago. He said, "What's going to change the way we do things in cities is airborne cars or you know drones with people on them." Because he said that means you can live anywhere. Like, you know, someone in Charleville can probably fly to somewhere close within 30 or 40 minutes, right? If we can get high-speed drones to fly people. And then then take some of the burden off the, you know, people with, um, you know, medical problems and all that sort of stuff. People living out in the bush not having access to care, for example. So I reckon they should fund, you know, accelerate transport. The way we live, uh, the way we transport ourselves is, is really archaic. So... If we, if we solve that problem, that means people in the city could live in the bush. You know, they could fly into work within 20 minutes. They could live anywhere. So that would solve the whole housing crisis. They would build, put some more energy back into regional areas. Anyway, that's by pie in the sky. You asked for pie in the sky, mate, so I gave it to you. I love that, actually. That's funny. I'm just thinking of where I'd go. Like, if on a Friday afternoon, where would you go for a knockoff beer? <laughs> <laughs> Has to be self-driving on the way home. <laughs> a couple other questions to wrap tim and, and these are ones which we're asking everyone i think i might keep asking the wallet one though because that's a goodie what's something you've got on your bucket list something i've got on my bucket list um my goodness 
What, personal or business? No, nah, personal. Uh, well, yeah, I want to I want to do a trip to Southeast Asia on a motorbike, mate. That's what I'm I'm looking forward to my 50th birthday next year, so I'm uh, really keen to really keen to do a trip to to Vietnam and spend a, a couple of weeks on a motorbike. How good. <laughs> What's your favorite grain-based dish? My favorite grain-based dish. I do like my rice, mate. If you're calling that a grain, I'm sure you are. Yep. You can do that. Who would be three people you'd have around for your rice-based dish? <laughs> Past um, or present? That's a good question. You should have prepped me up for that one. That's going to be a bit more challenging. Well, I suppose we could ask Elon around. He might bring his wallet, like you say. <laughs> <laughs> he might leave it behind with any luck. <laughs> He'd probably leave it behind. <clears throat> um, that's a good question. I don't know if I can answer that in a hurry, mate. I'm, I need some time to think about that. You can come back to us on that. What was your first ever paid job? I reckon it was uh, chipping weeds, mate, in a in a cotton paddock under a, under a centre pivot um, in a hot central Queensland sun, and you walk under the centre pivots and get freezing cold water, mate. It was so good. But, yeah, chip, chipping weeds, mate, that's what I grew up doing. I remember when I was on farm, one of the very, very first jobs I did as a jackaroo was chipping Bathurst burr, <laughs> and then we went on to spend about eight weeks spraying the stuff, and to this day I actually have no idea why we... Chip, spent the first few days chipping them. I think it was literally just a rite of passage. <laughs> I think that's what it was. It's an indoctrination, mate. Absolutely. It was. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us for a chat on the GRDC In Conversation podcast. I'm sure, yeah, plenty of people will find it really interesting. I think the space that you're in, literally, using satellites and imagery and whatnot, it has evolved so much Well, and, and just continues to feel like it's just evolving so quickly. Like, as you mentioned, Starlink and other things have just... Have, have really changed the way that people are communicating and getting access beyond kind of their farm gate. And I think it'd be very exciting to see what can happen in the paddock and, and you've really got a box seat for it, not just here in Australia, but around the world. Mm. No, well, thanks for the opportunity. It's um, great to talk to you finally. And um, yeah, I'm glad that GRDC is doing this because it is really important to focus on the, the human element in our business. And, um, you know, it's a critical component of it. And I, I guess finishing off the... The most enjoyable thing about working in the ag tech industry in Australia is, is really the people. It's so rewarding because it's like it's like a giant family, mate. Like, um, you know, everyone's so close. So that's the good thing about ag in Australia. Everyone knows everyone. It's probably good and bad, but, um, you know, it, it's it's so rewarding to work in such a nice industry that, you know, everyone treats you with great respect. And I love it so much working with those people. So, yeah, no, I'm glad they're bringing this to the fore because it's, it's critically important. No, it is. it's a great project we've got going. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grain sector. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode. <laughs>